Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Uh, we are back. I was I was away in Europe for a little while. Uh, Ken, I know you've uh, at least had a short break to Las Vegas, uh, so I hope uh, that was as glamorous as going to uh, Normandy and Loire Valley. Absolutely. 120 degrees, and what can you complain about? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's 20 more degrees than anyone could normally even hope for. Exactly. So while we've been gone, uh, there's been some interesting news. Why don't we start with some additional developments in the federal criminal case that's been brought against former President Trump down in Florida? And we're still seeing some action in front of Judge Eileen Cannon. I think it's still the case that we still haven't seen her make enough substantive decisions to have developed any new viewpoints on whether she's handling this case well or poorly. I think that's right. Everyone has sort of been breathlessly hanging on to every minute order to see if there's some sort of uh, tell in there. I haven't seen anything. Everything so far has been very routine and procedural rather than substantive. And I think we're coming up, though, to some times when she'd be making some types of decisions that will give us a hint about how the case is going to go in front of her. So in theory, this case is supposed to go to trial on August 14th. And I think nobody ever expected that the the nominal trial date, which they, they set that initial trial date. Is that based on the Speedy Trial Act? Basically say, well, we have 70 days to go to trial. And they put down that number. And then pretty much inevitably, they end up pushing the number back. But the the, the theoretical initial number is a trial on August 14th. Yeah, exactly. Usually uh, in many places, the judges automatically set trials out like 56 days. You've got two weeks to play with there before the end of the 70-day period. And then almost inevitably, it gets continued out some amount of time, depending on the nature of the case. And and in fact, there was a filing from the government already showing that uh, the Speedy Trial Act, the 70-day clock, there's already a bunch of added days to that, that whenever there are pretrial motions pending, they sort of stop the clock. Right. The 70 days is sort of the plain vanilla application. And then whenever any of a two dozen things happens, uh, that starts various sub clocks where the time doesn't count. So yes, when you've got a motion pending and when there are a bunch of other things happening, then the time is not running, kind of like the statute of limitations. So Mm -hmm. the government has filed something um, suggesting an initial trial date in December which sounds like a long way away to people, unless you're familiar with federal practice, where you would think it is a fairly aggressive trial date for a case of this nature, where you've got uh, you know stuff going on over years, you've got complex white collar issues and uh, possibly classified documents issues. And so then you also have a motion from the Trump side, basically saying not only is December too soon to go to trial, but in fact, you shouldn't set any trial date whatsoever. And they have a lot of arguments about why it's unreasonable to go to trial anytime soon. And I think sort of my sense of your read of this is that some of these are actually pretty good arguments, and some of them are not such good arguments. I want to start with the one that has drawn the most attention, which is basically that Trump says, well, I'm going to be really busy running for president. You can't put me on trial while I'm running for president, and so this should have to wait until the campaign is over. Obviously, this is not an issue that comes up in a normal case. Is that an argument that's that's likely to carry any water in terms of how this case should be scheduled? I don't think it would in front of the vast majority of federal judges. Uh, as you say, there is nothing in the statute saying that time is excludable if the person's running for president, at least not yet. Uh, <laughs> and it's 
dubious to me that most judges would put it into sort of the catch-all interests of justice exclusion from the statute. Trump is wielding this very aggressively along with the concept that he can't get a fair trial as long as he is the person who is running for president and therefore a figure of great controversy. And it's, to me, a little alarming. It sort of uh, suggests that it's kind of like an analog to the rule that the Department of Justice won't try to prosecute a sitting president uh, based on the presumption that the law prevents that. And now you've, you're extending that to saying a judge shouldn't try a person who is running for president. Um, which to me seems rather made up and dubious in terms of uh, how we view how people are responsible for their actions and how nobody's above the law. Well, and I I think more specifically, it's not about the fact that he's running for president. It's the fact that he is a leading candidate for president. Right. That, you know, he's prominent and a central figure of controversy. So they're not suggesting a rule that would allow anyone to just file paperwork to be on the ballot as a presidential candidate and therefore uh, avoid uh, trial. It's, it's essentially creating an, an almost specific exemption for Trump is, is what they would be trying to do. Or, I mean, you could have someone else who's a front runner candidate for the presidency who's also likely to be indicted in several places at once. Um, but that's, I mean, the, the reason we have a podcast that's in large part about this is this is a very unusual situation um, that I think is unlikely to have a lot of analogs. Well, again, so far. Um, <laughs> so, yes, but it's true that it probably the logic doesn't apply to some also ran or stunt candidate or things like that. But I think it would apply if this sort of trend of uh they're always talking about on from the Republicans about how, you know, Joe Biden should be investigated. And uh, before that, there was the endless chant of lock her up about Hillary Clinton. I don't anticipate we're going to get away anytime soon from this sort of political sentiment of investigating and accusing prominent presidential candidates. So uh, this seems to be uh, an argument that would be pretty flexible in, in the future. So you think most judges would would not take this argument very seriously. If Judge Eileen Cannon does take it seriously and she issues some order delaying the trial on these specific grounds, is that something the government could immediately appeal? So it wouldn't be immediately appealable under normal procedures. In other words, not a standard appeal. You could take up a writ, an emergency motion on it. But this is the type of decision that is very much in a trial judge's discretion. And the standard is going to be very heavily in Judge Cannon's favor. So unless she does it in a way that is extremely clumsy, that basically says, you know, I'm finding that as a matter of law and policy, henceforth, uh, no presidential candidate shall ever go to trial. Uh, I, I think it would be very hard to get in a court of appeals to turn down uh, an order that just said, I find based on all of these factors, then I'm going to push the trial out to whenever. Because uh, one thing that's interesting about that is you also note December, trying to go to trial in this case, in this calendar year, you say that would be an aggressive schedule, it would be unusual for a case of this level of complexity to go to trial that quickly. And you also note that a number of the other reasons that Trump's team brings up about why they feel the trial should be delayed, some of them are are quite reasonable arguments on their part about why this would be too fast to go to trial. It's It looks to me like it shouldn't be that hard to come up with a more garden variety set of reasons why this case 
should be pushed off by at least a year and a half. That, you know, maybe if it was, you know, even if the case didn't involve someone who was this prominent and controversial, that it's fairly likely that it wouldn't go to trial before the end of next year. Is that right? Uh, it, it would not be at all unusual for a trial of this nature and complexity to take a long time to go to trial, perhaps as much as a year and a half. And I think that they include in the sort of sexy because I'm running for president argument just to sort of see what Judge Cannon will do with it. And also uh, to sort of play to the base and uh, offer the argument out there to the followers. I, I think the far more powerful reasons here are that uh, it's a, a complicated case in terms of the number of documents that are going to be involved. The, the government has brought a bunch of counts. Uh, there are going to be a lot of different documents. The law that governs how they're going to go through, which documents are going to be allowed into evidence and how, when they are in any way classified, uh, is going to be complicated. I imagine there's going to be a ton of of motion practice where Trump is arguing to suppress various types of evidence and making constitutional arguments and things like that. So these are all the types of things that routinely uh, delay cases a, a long while. We also don't yet have a count on the um, number of pages of documents likely to be turned over in discovery, but I anticipate it's going to be very high. And it's very common to say, okay, well, we need more time just to review these thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of documents. So all those things are things that very routinely kick cases out for a long time. In their filing, uh, the Trump team cited some other classified documents cases and how long they took. And they said that, for instance, the reality winner case, which of course was eventually resolved with a plea, um, had a trial set out about 14 months after indictment. And that was dramatically simpler. So you could see how those are fairly powerful arguments that this should be put out uh, further. However, it's not generally the way that it's done for the judge to say, okay, see you in two years or something like that. Uh, it is a little more common to say, well, for now, I'm putting the trial nine months out. Let's talk again in six months with the understanding that it's likely that it'll be continued again, but not certain. Uh, judges don't like to put stuff way out into the far future uh, because the way lawyers operate is that we, uh, if you put it 24 months away, we do nothing for 22 months, and then we show up in a panic mm -hmm. in the 23rd month asking for another <laughs> continuance. Uh, so, uh, what they're asking for to maybe not set a trial date yet or set a medium one is, is more typical. There are some other arguments in here besides that the impact of trying someone who is so prominently running for president, uh, calls for a delay. There are other related, but different arguments. One is basically, I'm really busy because I'm running for president. That's putting a lot of demands on my time and I don't have time to be criminally tried. And then also some other related matters. I mean, Trump is going to be criminally tried for state charges in New York. He's going to have to have some, spend some time in court for that. He has civil litigation that is keeping him in court. His attorneys have other cases that they're involved in that will have them in court at various times. What's the strength of those sorts of arguments about why a trial needs to be delayed? So probably the tr strongest of those is that he's being tried in another court. Uh, and just because judges tend to be somewhat deferential to other judges. So that's probably the best argument. I'm busy running for president is not an argument I would expect to get a lot of respect from the vast number of federal <laughs> judges any more than 
I'm busy running a business or a business empire. Uh, it just doesn't register. It's like, that's fine, but now you've been indicted and it's time to come here to play. Um, <laughs> the argument that my lawyers are really busy really depends on the judge, how receptive the judge is. Uh, you know, the judge will say, okay, that's fine, rubber stamp, or the judge may say, well, I want to hear exactly, you know, the number of each case and exactly what day you're supposed to start and what the trial estimate is and an assessment of how likely it is to go to trial and, you know, really dig down into the details. Because lawyers have, you know, 10 trials scheduled all the time and nine of those aren't going to go to trial. So, and, and judges know that. So it, it really comes down to these are all hooks that the judge could use to continue things or could dig down and and question and uh, challenge. And then you mentioned that the the Classified Information Procedures Act, the, this law that governs uh, how you handle a criminal case where some of the evidence is classified. And we've talked some about how that's very complicated. Um, there's also stuff that hasn't really had review by appellate courts before. And so there could be disagreements about what the law means in addition to the fact that, you know, even just straightforwardly applying the law is, is, is complicated and can require a lot of meetings and, and hearings and such. There's also this claim from Trump's lawyers that there's a Presidential Records Act issue. Um, the Presidential Records Act, which governs the process by which records from the president are turned over to the National Archives after after they leave office, or when they leave office. They basically, they have this theory that the Presidential Records Act creates certain rights for Trump or for any president leaving office to some sort of negotiation with the government over the return of documents, and it supersedes the Espionage Act. And that the the court is going to need to consider all of that stuff before trial. And, you know, the, the most aggressive form of this basically says that Trump shouldn't have even been indicted because the Presidential Records Act creates certain rights for him. Now, my understanding is that that is complete bullshit. That's just the phrase I was about to use. OK. Uh, yeah, it, it, it is utter nonsense. Uh, it's not a thing. And they know it's not a thing, but it's one of the big, I think, more political than uh, legal arguments they're making. That's really one of the things they're using as a pitch to the base and as a soundbite, less anything that I think that they expect to find purchase with a vast majority of judges. Although, again, if Eileen Cannon is inclined to get up to bullshit to stick her neck out for Trump, maybe this is one of the ways that she could do it, even though it is very widely considered to be complete bullshit. I mean, the Presidential Records Act exists to remove rights right. from a person leaving the office, not to establish them. Yeah. And the idea that it somehow uh, silently and secretly modifies the Espionage Act really doesn't pass uh, the red face test. And so, again, is that the sort of thing that if Judge Eileen Cannon went for that argument where the government might move immediately to appeal? Oh, hell yes. Uh, so... If she did it in a way that gave them the right of an immediate appeal, like, say, uh, by dismissing or by doing something under the uh, the Procedures Act about dealing with confidential documents, uh, they'd appeal. If not, they'd go up in an emergency motion or writ. And that type of thing is the thing I think where a court of appeal might get involved right away if you're really screwing around like that. That would be something that would be on the order of what she did before you know, completely inventing this jurisdiction to interfere with a search warrant and uh, an investigation that she got slapped down on. 
not only on the order of what she did before, I mean, that's the area of law where we've seen her specifically take bizarre stances. This question of like, to what extent does Donald Trump have rights relating to these documents uh, that he should be able to vindicate in court? I mean, she she allowed him to sue the government for the return of those documents uh, and actually enjoined the government's criminal investigation until she was slapped down by appeals court above her. So she really seemed to buy into the idea that these were his boxes these are his documents, or at least the presumption is that they are his documents. Um, and so if you know that we, we don't know that she has an interest in other specific cockamamie theories from the Trump team, like the idea that a person who's running for president can't be tried while they're running for president. But this area about the ownership of the documents is one where she sort of previously established a bizarre set of views. Yes. And so that's why it doesn't seem to be much of a stretch to think that that could be the avenue she uses to um, advance Trump's interests here and interfere with the prosecution. But that would provoke an appeal or an emergency written. I think that would be a, a very high likelihood of getting corrected the way she got corrected over the search warrant stuff. When is it likely that we're going to see a ruling from Judge Cannon on these issues? Well, there's supposed to be a status conference coming up. So I would imagine that um, this month we're going to see some sort of ruling on what the new trial date is going to be or establishing some sort of schedule or method for coming up with a date. In other Trump litigation news, some civil litigation, uh, the original E. Jean Carroll lawsuit against former President Trump that was brought for defamation related to statements that he made denying her uh, rape and sexual assault allegations while he was uh, sitting as president of the United States. Um, there's this issue of over whether the president can be sued for various statements that he makes while in office. Are the statements made in his capacity as president or not? And you have these two federal laws, the Federal Tort Claims Act and the Westfall Act, that govern those sort of situations. And the idea advanced by President Trump also for a time advanced by the Justice Department under President Biden, that there's an extremely broad scope of what sort of statements a president makes that are considered to be statements in an official capacity, that basically because the president is an elected official who has to maintain public support and seek re-election, um, that basically any statement that he makes about his own character can be a statement made in an official capacity. And so denying an allegation of rape would fall in that category. Um, and because you cannot sue the federal government for defamation, if the government has to stand in as the defendant in lieu of the, the former president, then that would mean that E. Jean Carroll could not proceed on that claim. Um, and so for institutional reasons, the Biden DOJ had stood where Trump had, had stood here and said the, the government has to be substituted uh, as the defendant in this case. But then um, because Donald Trump has continued to make those statements even after he left office, DOJ has now changed its position, at least as regards this specific matter, basically saying that since Trump keeps saying this, even though he's no longer president, that's indicative that it was not a statement in his official capacity and the government should not, after all, step in as the uh, as the defendant. Yeah, and it's important to remember, Josh, that Department of Justice isn't completely making this up. So there is some case law out there that says basically that when a elected official responds to a controversy, that there's a theory under which they're acting in their government capacity because, you know, they're responding to constituents and constituent concerns and their reputation is relevant to their ongoing position 
as a government official. There's a uh, case from D.C. that involved a um, uh, a congressman who was getting divorced, and he basically blamed the divorce, which generally was understood not to be terrorism-related. Uh, he blamed it on the Council for American Islamic Relations, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. And they sued for defamation, and the court said, ah, well, you know what? He's, he's trying to keep his government job, and therefore it's a government statement, and therefore, you know, uh, the Federal Tort Claims Act applies. So the Biden administration here and, and, and Merrick Garland, the Department of Justice, weren't just completely making this up. Mm -hmm. But in the course of this Trump case, uh, the D.C. Uh, Circuit and then the District of Columbia Court of Appeals clarified the law on this a little bit and sent it back to the judge. And now Merrick Garland has come in with a sort of a clever move saying, okay, well, now that we have this clarification on what it means about, you know, when is a public official acting in their public capacity, we reevaluated this and we thought, huh, well, you know, Donald Trump said before that when he was saying, you know, I, I never touched that woman, she's not my type, I didn't rape her, that all that talk was, you know, in order to protect his government position. But hey, he just said all that same stuff again, and he's not in the government anymore. So during his CNN interview, he repeated all this and he repeated it again. So how can it be, you know, aimed at protecting his government position if he's doing it even when he's out of the government? So we guess we're backing off this now. Uh, we don't we don't think it needs to apply anymore. Sorry we bothered you, Judge. We'll just, you know, slowly backing out of the room now. Uh, it's all good, which is maybe not the most 100% convincing exit from the situation that they very dramatic. It doesn't seem very convincing at all. No, they, they regret they got into this. It was hugely unpopular. Uh, Merrick Garland coming in saying that Trump denying raping E. Jean Carroll was in his capacity as president of the United States. You understand institutionally why they don't want people constantly suing uh, federal officials for things they say during campaign speeches. But on the other hand, this example seems so far-fetched. It seems so abusive uh, that I, I think that they were really looking for a way to get out of what they got into. But does that make any sense as a, as a legal theory that statements that a public official makes while in office that are meant to defend their reputation and convince the public to, to trust them, that those are made in an official capacity unless they would also make those statements when they're not in office. But that doesn't, I mean, the, the Trump, I mean, Trump, for example, is still a political candidate. Presumably, you know, the, the same interests that you have that are governmental when you're in government and, and maintaining your reputation, it makes sense that you would also need to maintain your reputation when you're not in government, either because you're seeking office or for other reasons that people have, other professional endeavors, other reasons that they have to need the public to feel about them in a certain way. The fact that you would care about that while you're not in office doesn't mean that it's not related to your office when you're in office. That just doesn't seem convincing at all. Yeah, it's it's a little fuzzy. And I think the problem is that the initial theory that if you're defending your reputation, then it's related to your office is so open-ended that it would seem to encompass almost anything you could possibly say that could be defamatory. Well, yes. Uh, so, and I think they realize they don't like that. They don't like that rule where it's that open-ended. So now they're scrambling around for this. And um, yeah, I don't think it's the most convincing thing ever, but the... the but also, as you say, it's not just DOJ's rule. I mean, there was that, that, that court ruling. 
Yes. Uh, I mean, the, the, the judge had already indicated, I don't think that this fits. The judge had said, first of all, I don't think it applies to the president on which he got overturned. Uh, the judge also said that I don't think that this particular statement was in his uh, capacity as president uh, and should be defended. That was the one where the Court of Appeals and the D.C. Court of Appeals offered their input on how you evaluate that legal question, sent it back to be reevaluated. And so now that DOJ has said, well, under these new rules, we don't think it applies, I think the judge is going to agree very quickly. And so the judge has already been reversed once on appeal here. Do you expect that decision from the judge to stand once he, if he renders it in the direction you expect? Well, yeah, especially because DOJ is saying that they don't think it applies. They're backing out, which is going to uh, hold a huge amount of weight. Um, I'm not even completely convinced that DOJ's decision can be reviewed. In other words, that hmm. over their objection, a court can say, no, no, you have to step in. So um, it'll be interesting to see. Let's talk about Rudy Giuliani. The hearing committee of the District of Columbia Bar has recommended that Rudy be disbarred for his actions in litigation related to the 2020 election. Uh, and basically the idea is that he rushed into court with a bunch of stuff that he had good reason to believe was made up. Yeah, and more or less uh, the concept is that he made big splashy claims in the federal lawsuit in Pennsylvania attacking the procedures there that didn't have any basis in fact, that he didn't have any adequate basis to think were true. And uh, one of his most uh, devastating opponents here, the person who said the most terrible things that undermine him the most, is Rudy Giuliani, who said more or less that this came up on short notice and we couldn't really look into it very well, but here it is anyway. <laughs> um that was kind of his approach during that Pennsylvania case is say a lot of really dumb, embarrassing things that you generally don't admit to a federal judge. So this opinion by this committee of the D.C. bar is a little bit dry, but it's also somewhat devastating. And it just says that here he is making this gigantic claim and these very elaborate demands for relief that would have the impact of disenfranchising a huge number of people, and he just didn't have the facts. He did not have uh, the factual basis for a lot of it, and at least some of the theories, he had absolutely no legal basis. They're a little generous on a couple. They say that on a couple of things, I guess how you could say you can make this legal argument, it's colorable, it's wrong, but you can make it. On others, they say there is simply no basis for it, and certainly there's no factual basis. And you're supposed to, as a lawyer, only make arguments to the court when they have some sort of good faith or based on reasonable inquiry, factual or legal basis. And so, I mean, in any lawsuit, if you get to a ruling stage, someone is found to have been wrong, right? Someone's always wrong about the law. Someone's always wrong about the facts. What's the what's the distinction between being wrong in the ordinary course and being so wrong that you actually lose your law license? Well, it is very rare, extremely rare for um, bar organizations to police this issue, to come after someone for 
making claims that are not well-founded in fact or law. As we've talked about before, bar organizations are far more likely to police things like stealing from client trust accounts and sleeping with clients and and that type of uh, You're not supposed to do that. Uh, no, Josh, it's 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 not it's a no-no. Yeah. Um so it's a lot easier when Rudy Giuliani is the client. Um so <laughs> You uh, you don't have many of these types of bar prosecutions, uh, and the ones that tend to happen are ones where you get noticed. So Giuliani's defense here is, poor me, I'm being persecuted for political reasons. And um, he's not 100% wrong. He's kind of right with a twist, which is, I think, if you go into court and demand to disenfranchise a gigantic number of voters in a hotly contested uh, presidential election, you get noticed. And, um, you know, if you go in and basically, you know, you, you want to undo your township's election for dog catcher, um, even if you make big, wrong, extravagant factual claims, that's probably not going to get noticed. But if you go in making all these extravagant claims that you can't back up that seem that you knew at the time you couldn't back up and that don't have a legal basis either, that is going to get a lot of attention. And the bar here is very explicit that the reason to wield such a serious uh, such a serious remedy here of disbarment is because of the seriousness uh, of what he's asking for. Uh, they say here um, that his actions helped destabilize our democracy. It says his, his malicious and meritless claims have done lasting damage and are antagonistic to the oath to support the Constitution of the United States that he swore when he was admitted to the bar. Um, and they point out this is something that, you know, people of all political stripes have criticized him for. So you're much more likely, uh, you know, if you get involved in a really big high profile case with potential big consequences to run into uh, a bar prosecution like this. And then Lynn Wood, uh, who uh, is sort of the part of the team of misfits, Sidney Powell and all those folks, uh, he has asked that his law license in Georgia be retired, and that will basically allow him to stop being investigated over his own participation in these activities? Right. Lynn Wood was another uh, infamous participant in a number of fairly crazy post-election litigations, and he was undergoing uh, bar proceedings in Georgia about that. And uh, last week, he asked to retire his bar license uh, irrevocably, as he put it, to spend more time with his family and taking instructions directly <laughs> from God. Okay. And uh, that request was granted. And so he is now, as he announced, retired officially from the practice of law, something that some people would have said he was, in effect, some time ago and that he was practicing something other than law. But uh, now uh, that distinction is uh, no longer uh, relevant and he is he is no longer a practicing lawyer. Um, let's talk about Ray Epps. Ray Epps was a was a capital rider and he for a very long time was not arrested for any activities related to the capital riot. And certain people, including some people who, who talk on Fox News Channel, convinced themselves that this was because Ray Epps was a Fed. 
uh, that he was there as some sort of undercover FBI agent instigator um, involved in some conspiracy to make Trump's supporters look bad. Uh, on January 6th at the Capitol. We've seen members of, the con- of Congress sort of trying to promote this conspiracy theory. Uh, Ray Epps says that he was, you know, very sincerely one of these people who was like, you know, trying to uh, overturn the election. He certainly was not a uh, not a, not a Fed. Um, and he's suing Fox for defamation for accusing him of being an undercover agent. Yeah, I kind of love this uh, this argument, Josh. Uh, I love this. Hey, hey, it's it's defamatory to call me a rat when I'm really a traitor. Um, <laughs> but he's he right is, as a matter of law, isn't he? He is because yeah. really what they're saying it, it might not be defamatory to say that you're an FBI agent, but to say that you're an FBI agent who was part of a scheme to uh, fabricate. Uh, a riot and, you know, uh, smuggle in Antifa agents or, or you know, defame good, honest Americans who are this there to lawfully protest and all this nonsense. Sure, that's defamatory. So um, the the ultimate claim uh, probably does satisfy the requirements for defamation. Fox News's credibility on the things it said about all this whole series of events is completely in tatters. Uh, A lot of the work here has been done by um, Dominion and other prior litigants in in going after Fox. So I think here we see with Epps part of the uh, pattern of the uh, crows coming in to feast on the corpse uh, that we're going to continue to see of, of more and more small people who were defamed during Fox's sort of campaign of just saying crazy shit about the election. One of the things that Ray Epps says in his complaint against Fox is that he was notified in May of this year that he is going to be criminally charged related to the riot. Um, now it's July. We haven't seen those those charges publicly. But so and then he further suggests with, without any evidence that I can see marshaled to support this claim, he thinks that it was Fox's attention on him that caused him to be indicted that they don't think it's likely that the feds would have focused on him and brought these charges two and a half years later if Fox had not drawn all that attention to him. Now, I would note the indictments have still been trickling in in the Capitol riot cases. There were a really large number of people involved in this. It has taken the government time to establish the identities of various people and to work through all the available cases. So I would not assume you know, if, if Ray Epps is indeed indicted this year, which we have as far as I know, no evidence of other than he claims he's going to be in his own court filing. If that does happen, I don't think that we can assume that's Fox's fault. But would that be would that be part of his claim for damages? Basically, you lied about me and that caused the government to notice a crime that I committed? I don't think that's a valid defamation argument. So it's one thing to say, like, you know, you lied about me and I lost my government job, or you lied about me and the government came to the wrong conclusions about me. But this is, you lied about me, I was noticed, and something that I did led to me being indicted. That's not defamation, because it's not the false thing that leads to the government action. It's a true thing that they investigate independently. So uh, I, I think that the causation there is broken. So for instance, if, if you just, you like... Uh, accuse if Fox just you know accuses some random stranger on the street of being a pedophile, uh, which wouldn't surprise me if they did, 
and uh, that person gets investigated and turns out he's a tax cheat, I, that's not defamation uh, damages if they wind up getting prosecuted as a tax cheat. But I mean, this is it's part of the narrative in this complaint. We've, I feel like we've seen that in a lot of these lawsuits where they use the narrative in the complaint to talk about some, some negative consequence or some broadly construed injustice, the results from something somebody did even if that's not directly part of the damages. I mean, often in these cases it's involved, you talk about how terrible it's been for our democracy or for our politics, things that, you know, that were done related to January 6th or trying to overturn the election, even if those are not things that you can actually get damages for. I mean, we saw that in the in the Dominion lawsuit where Dominion, you know, they talk about how terrible this has been for our country and our democracy that Fox told these lies about them. The damages were losses to Dominion's business, not losses to our democracy. But you talk about that because it sort of makes an argument to people about why they should care about this thing that was done here. And so I guess the, this is some weird version of Ray Epps doing that. Yeah, it's not a very effective one. I mean, most of the Fox cases <laughs> you have, they, Fox says crazy things, and then you have things like job losses, and then you have things like, you know, very serious harassment by crazy people. You know, uh, right. it's like Fox said this about me, and then all of a sudden, you know, 10,000 uh, creepy guys in their mother's basements with screen names like Admiral Balsack have been sending death threats to me. Uh, well, I mean, and that sort of stuff is also here in the in the Epps right. case. In addition Absolutely. to being indicted, one of the other negative things visited upon him was 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 threats and and, and insults and such coming from the Fox audience. Right. So, but, you know, I, the, I, it's been a rough time on a number of dimensions for Mr. Epps. I kind of think that the whole getting federally indicted, uh, that one's on him. Uh, <laughs> that's not going to be a damages theory. Would it be the case that that Ray Epps would have been notified two months ago that he was going to be indicted without the indictment actually coming down in that period? Could be, uh, if he's, particularly if he's uh, represented by counsel. They could have reached out. They could have talked to his counsel. He could have already gotten the sense that an indictment will be coming. I mean, it, it feels in some ways like the events of January 6, 2021 are, you know, so long ago, but they're really two and a half years ago. And that's not a particularly long period of time in federal criminal law. Uh, for an indictment to come down, particularly when you see that they're processing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases uh, in a, a very extraordinary way. Finally, let's talk about Elon Musk and Wachtell Lipton. Wachtell is a uh, white shoe law firm. Uh, they do uh, litigation related to uh, to securities, very lucrative area of law. Um, and so one of the representations they had was Twitter, when Twitter agreed to sell itself to Elon Musk for $54.20 a share. Um, Elon Musk was briefly very excited about the prospect of buying Twitter and then came to regret having offered so much money for Twitter and just tried to not close. And so Wachtell was hired by Twitter to sue Elon Musk and force him to acquire the company as he had agreed to. Um, and so there was litigation that went on for a while. Ultimately, ultimately, it didn't actually settle. Elon just capitulated and eventually was like, fine, fine, okay, I'll close. Um, and so the, the case never went to trial. But then ultimately, Elon Musk paid $54.20 a share. That probably saved Twitter's former public shareholders, people who owned the company before Elon Musk did, this is probably worth $25 billion to them or something, the extent to which right. he was overpaying for Twitter compared to what its real market value would have been at the time if he had not closed. So it was a very, very good job done by Wachtell. And Wachtell was paid uh, $90 million. And this was structured as a success fee, basically, rather than Wachtell 
billed X number of hours and got paid. Wachtell forced Elon to close and they got paid 90 million, which, you know, again, might be 0.3% of the value that they created for the shareholders of Twitter by forcing this closure. Um, But ultimately, it's not really those shareholders who paid that $90 million bill. It's really Elon Musk who paid that bill. Because, in, and this is how it works, when you when you agree to acquire a company, it's going to take you months to close. The old management team still has to run it through that whole period. And they agree they're going to run the company in the ordinary course. But you don't get to look at their treasury at the end of that period and say, well, gee, you spent all this money. I'm reducing what I'm paying you by $250 million or whatever. Effectively, if they send money to Wachtell Lipton, that's a, that's a cost that's borne by the acquirer, not by the owners at the time the bill is paid. So now Elon Musk is suing Wachtell, basically saying that they they overcharged Twitter. This was an unconscionable fee of, of $90 million, and he wants the money back. Does he uh, have any likelihood of getting that money back? I, I think it's unlikely. So th- this does seem to be sort of an exercise in, in petulance by him. He's going after the firm that successfully outmaneuvered and broke him in, the, in his effort to back out of a deal that he entered into. Um, there are some p- appearance issues for Wachtell. So they had originally had an hourly agreement uh, by which they were going to be paid uh, purely obscene amounts on an hourly basis. <laughs> uh, and at some point during this process, they renegotiated a success fee, which is not atypical for this type of high stake stuff, not atypical for firms like uh, Wachtell, and uh, is even done by the very firm uh, that Musk is using to sue here in high stakes cases. Um, the issue is whether they did it with the right type of writing, whether it was approved the right way, that type of thing. There are, for good reasons, persnickety rules about how lawyers have to have fee agreements properly approved in writing on the record, that type of thing. Uh, so there's also a general rule that whether or not your client ag- agrees to your fee, that it cannot, as a matter of law, be unconscionable is the term. But as you pointed out, this is a success fee on a truly epic amount of money, mm-hmm. which they did succeed on. Yeah, they were very successful. <laughs> they probably, from an unconscionability point of view, could have gotten a lot more. Uh, so I don't think that argument works. Um, Musk is trying to spin it. Basically, you've got this lame duck board who hates Musk that has no interest in protecting the fiduciary duties, you know, is not exercising its fiduciary duty to stop the company from wasting money. Uh, but but that presumes that, like, there is some breach of fiduciary duty in spending this money on Wachtell, where, as you pointed out, uh, spending the money on Wachtell uh, protected the company's fiduciary to do the best thing for its shareholders to get them that extra $25 billion. So I, I think that the only thing where I would want to delve deeper to understand it better is the process by which the agreement was or wasn't documented in writing, uh, which can always be a bit of a pain. But I, a big picture, no. I don't see a good argument from Musk here. I see this more as a a bit of a pout uh, by him and likely to be an embarrassing one. I mean, it's part of a broader business strategy where Elon Musk has been trying to find his way to get out of paying whatever bills 
he can avoid paying at Twitter, um, even if those are pursuant to contracts that were signed by the former management and that remain binding on him. That's how it works when you buy a company. Um, and so it's it's sort of Trump-like in basically, you know, sure, okay, you have that agreement, but I'm going to make you take me to court to enforce it, and I'm just going to be a huge pain. Um, even with, you know, there were payouts to the former executive team. I mean, Parag Agarwal, who um, was the... Uh, the CEO of Twitter who sold to Elon Musk, absolutely the most successful CEO of Twitter ever. Twitter has been sort of a middling financial performer throughout its existence, never really threw off the kind of money that, that Facebook and Instagram did. The best way ever to manage Twitter was to convince Elon Musk to overpay for the company and buy it and take it off your hands. He did a fantastic job. Right. Um, and Elon Musk has been trying to deny him his golden parachute, which I think it's hard to imagine a CEO more deserving of a golden parachute than Paragagarwal. But so it's, this seems to be the overall strategy. I'm just going to be a huge pain. If you want your money, you're going to have to, to come force me to give it to you. It feels like there's a reason people usually don't run their companies like this, in part because you just end up in a lot of this litigation that you lose. You do, and it makes it harder to contract with people because they don't think they're going to get paid. Um, you're right, Josh, that there's a definite Trumpian ring to it, but there's also a definite tech bro ring to it. So this is this attitude is very Silicon Valley all the way back to the internet boom of uh, around the turn of the millennium. You know, you, you've got uh, these guys who come in, you know, we're in reinventing the way business works. Man, what if <laughs> contracts were like just words, man, and they weren't forcible? You know, I, I, all this sort of, you know, I, I, I'm a... I'm a more deep thinker than you, and I'm reevaluating all these assumptions that you have to pay money that you owe. Uh, so it's kind of old hat. Yeah. Ken, by the way, we have one correction we should do from uh, an, an item that was in our special Fourth of July episode on being a better consumer of legal news. Uh, a listener, Austin, wrote in uh, and said uh, that we, we made a little mistake there uh, in a discussion of a case before the Arizona Supreme Court. And in, in the spirit of being uh, a better producer of legal news, what, um, what did we get wrong about what the Supreme Court of Arizona did with regard to the priest-penitent privilege? Josh, uh, what we got wrong is that a, a headline was even more clickbaity and wrong than we were using it to represent. So you might remember we were talking about how bad headlines often are about breaking legal news. And I used as an example uh, an Arizona case where the headlines tended to spin it as uh, the Arizona Supreme Court has said that the Mormons have this special privilege not to uh, report child abuse. When in fact, what had happened in the case is just a very typical application of the priest-penitent privilege that exists in every state in the United States and is ancient and not remarkable at all. Um, as uh, Mr. Marshall pointed out, what I got wrong was that it wasn't even really the Supreme Court that did this unremarkable thing. All the Arizona Supreme Court did was to decide not to review the lower court that did this unremarkable thing. So the headlines were wrong for that additional order of magnitude thing, that it was an unremarkable legal ruling, and the Arizona Supreme Court didn't even really itself make it. We regret the error. Um, well, why don't we leave it there for this week? Ken, I appreciate you speaking with me. Thank you, Josh, as always. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosher. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more soon. See you next time.